You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning, good morning. Open your Bible to to everyone's favorite, most encouraging, uplifting book, the book of Job. Uh, For those of you online, welcome in as well. Glad that you are here with us. Uh, If you are new here this morning, we are finishing up a uh, very small three-week series that we began called Why Did This Happen? Where we've been looking at various reasons why we experience pain in our lives and Crucially, how to handle it from a biblical perspective. You know, as I've gotten older, uh, I am more and more convinced that pain is the one thing that sort of binds or unites all people together. It's the one thing that we have in common. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how you vote or how you live your life or what you believe. Everyone has one shared experience together, and that is through pain. And, And last week, I gave you three ways we relate with one another in our pain. The first thing we said was we have all experienced pain in varying levels, right? Some varying levels. Some people, comparatively speaking, have had minor levels of painful experiences in their lives. It's, it's nothing crazy, but for their context, for their perspective, it's, it's the worst they've walked through, and so it's the most challenging thing that they are dealing with, and it's hard. It's painful. Others have walked through high-level trauma. Things that are really, really hard. But regardless of of the level of pain, all of us have experienced it in just varying levels. Number two, we've all made bad choices as a result of our pain. In other words, we usually don't handle painful experiences very well, or at least not naturally. Typically, when we experience something hurtful, we respond to pain with even more bad choices, and then that creates even more pain in our lives, and down the spiral we go. It's this dreadful cycle. We can't unlearn that cycle. We can figure out how to disrupt and even break that cycle, but it takes a little bit of practice. It takes a lot of practice, if we're being honest. And number three, and most importantly, I think for this series, is that we all want an explanation for our pain. In other words, when bad things happen, we often find ourselves asking the question, why did this happen? Who can I blame? Who is at fault here? Who can I point my finger at? Why did I experience this hurtful thing? And, and so over the last two weeks, we've looked at not one but two wisdom books in the Old Testament. The first week, we were in the book of Proverbs. And we talked about how if you have experienced pain, Proverbs says that it is likely because you have made a series of unwise choices. Proverbs is all about choices. We talked about the difference between choices and circumstances. Circumstances are those things in your life that you can't control. They're a result of sin in a fallen world. They happen to everyone. There's no avoiding them. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen. But choices, on the other hand, are those things that we do have control over. They're simply decisions that we make, and whether good or bad, we will experience some kind of consequence as a result of those choices. And so Proverbs sees life in very simple terms. Life is predictable. It's very predictable. If you make good choices, you can predict or expect blessing in your life. And if you make bad, unwise, foolish choices... You can predict or expect consequences. Now, last week, we went through our great life-enriching seminar. 
with the teacher from Ecclesiastes. And, and, and what we discovered is that the teacher disagrees with the simple view of life. He isn't interested in our choices at all. He says life is not simple at all. It isn't predictable at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Life is, do you remember the word? Hevel. Hevel. It's the, he, the Hebrew word that means literally smoke or vapor. And so Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is convinced that we should see life as we see Hevel or smoke or vapor. Life is there one minute like smoke and it's gone the next. It it takes a shape and right when you begin to wrap your mind around what that shape is, the shape changes. It looks solid, but when you try and reach your hand out and grab it, it dissipates through your fingers. And so Ecclesiastes, as hard and, and depressing as it might seem when you read it, it pushes us to this big idea that all we can do when we experience difficult And painful circumstances in our lives is to confront what is right in front of us right now. We shouldn't focus on the past because remember, time remembers nothing. Time keeps marching on. We shouldn't dwell on the future because we might not even make it tomorrow because everyone dies. Death comes for everyone. And even if we do make it tomorrow, we have no idea what tomorrow will look like because no one can predict anything. And so all we have is this present moment to confront what is right in front of us right now. This morning we look in Job, and this is the third wisdom book in the Old Testament, and Job is not really interested in dealing with anything we've talked about so far. Certainly it, it, it plays into choices and circumstances a little bit, but, but Job isn't really all that concerned about the choices that you make, and he's not all that concerned with the circumstances that you experience. Job is ultimately about conflict. Specifically, the relationship between the pain that you experience in your life and the conflict that you may or may not endure. There's a relationship between the two. They are often found together, pain and conflict. They have this sort of interesting connection. They, they interact with one another in various times in our lives. And so this morning, as we walk through Job, we're going to pay special attention to the pain that Job experiences and the conflict that he faces and try to understand the interaction between the two, the connection between the two, and hopefully, as a result of that, we'll better understand how pain and conflict affects us as well. Sound good? Amen? Now, before we uh, jump into a big talk about conflict, we got to understand what it is. What is conflict? How do we define it? If you were to look it up in the, the dictionary, just a standard modern definition would be something like a serious disagreement or argument. And I think most of us would agree with this. I mean, I don't think this is a very bad, it's not my favorite definition, but it's not a bad definition. It captures at least the spirit of conflict a little bit. But the biblical view of conflict is a bit more nuanced than that. And I would actually argue that there are two different distinct kinds of conflict in the scripture. And we need to know the difference between the both of them because we're going to see both of them play out in the book of Job. And we need to be able to tell the difference and understand which is which. The first kind of conflict we're going to see is a hurting conflict, something I'll call a hurting conflict. And I think this is probably what most people think of when they hear the word conflict. You could could understand this rather obviously as conflict with the intent to hurt. The goal, the, the main idea behind hurting conflict is to inflict pain. It is entered into with the goal of tearing down. It's divisive, it's disruptive, it seeks to injure, and the New Testament warns us against this kind of of conflict. Titus 3.10, the Apostle Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division 
after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. The word here for division, it's the Greek word hereticos. It's the word from which we get our word heretic. And it has the idea, it implies the idea of, of creating divisions through hurtful conflict. Spreading hurtful conflict in such a way that divides people or disrupts fellowship. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know, you know that they breed quarrels. <clears throat> Again, the Greek word here, mache, it's a word that means literally a conflict, a fight or a battle or some kind of physical conflict. This is hurting conflict, in other words. And we're warned not to engage in this kind of behavior. It's not fruitful. It's not productive. It seeks only to harm. It seeks only to tear down. We are to avoid this kind of conflict. New Testament's very clear about that. But it's not the only kind of conflict we find in Scripture. We find a, a different kind of conflict that is actually quite the opposite, something that I will call healing conflict. And we would, again, define this, I think, rather obviously as conflict with the intent to restore or heal or bring together. This kind of conflict still involves opposition. It still involves disagreement. It's still difficult and uncomfortable, but the aim of it is resolution to something that is broken. The aim of healing conflict is to bring together, not further tear down. And so understand this. This is a really important just sort of side point. It is crucial that you get this. Christians are not taught to never engage in conflict. There's this idea in the modern world that Christians should be non-conflict oriented, and that's simply not true. We need to have the right kind of conflict. We don't want to engage in hurtful conflict, but we are called to and model after healing conflict. I titled this message this morning, The Right Kind of Conflict, because the, the right kind of conflict is actually quite important for us in resolving some pain in our lives. Oftentimes... Pain, as we're going to find out, comes and is connected to conflict, and, and if we don't understand how to engage in a healing kind of conflict in those situations, we're never going to find the kind of healing we're looking for. There's probably no better example of this kind of conflict than in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. In fact, when you think about Jesus, conflict comes up a lot. Jesus is connected to conflict kind of everywhere he goes. In fact, let me give you a truth. Wherever you find Jesus, you find conflict. Wherever you find Jesus, you find conflict. You, you cannot read about Jesus and not read about conflict. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34. This is one of those never going to be on a coffee mug at Mardell's verses. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. <laughs> I thought he was the prince of peace. I thought he was all about love. Jesus says, I don't come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. I come to bring conflict. Conflict against sin and rebellion against God. Conflict against Satan and evil and death. It's, it's really pretty amazing, actually. When you read the Gospels with this in mind, you begin to notice it everywhere. Jesus is all about conflict. He's usually confronting some kind of sin in a person's life, but the, the point of that conflict with that individual is not shame and judgment, but to bring the person to repentance and restoration. 
So there's healing in mind. There's restoration in mind. A few examples. John chapter 4, one of my favorites, the woman at the well. Jesus has this really long conversation with her about worship and, and the, the holy mountain and what worship is. It's in, in spirit and truth. And, and I come to give you living water and you'll never thirst. And, and there's this really amazing discussion that he has with her. And, and already in this discussion, he's breaking all kinds of social rules. She's a woman. He's a Jewish rabbi. Beyond that, she's a Samaritan. Beyond that, she's a very questionable woman in society. And yet Jesus is found publicly speaking with her during the day, something that a Jewish man wouldn't be caught dead doing. And at the end of all that, he says to her, and, and this is just such true Jesus fashion, he says, go and tell your husband about that. And she says, well, sir, I don't have a husband. And he says, you are right in saying you don't have a husband, for you've had five, and the one you're living with now, you're not married to. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> this seems very, very conflict-oriented, right? Very aggressive, very offensive. And yet, what do we find happens with this woman in John chapter 4? She becomes an evangelist for Jesus. She goes back to her village, and she tells everyone about Jesus the Christ. So it was conflict, but it was healing conflict. Another one of my favorite stories in all the New Testament is in Mark chapter 5, the Gerasene demoniac, the, the demon-possessed man in the land of the Gerasenes. Jesus is passing through. Uh, this man is, is so demon-possessed and so uh, he has been so torn down by this experience that he's actually been relegated to a cemetery. He lives out away from the, the village, away from the town, because he is a threat to people. Because he is demon-possessed, he has actually a lot of supernatural features to him that he wouldn't have if he was just a regular man. Uh, we, we know that because it says at one point they tried to bind him with chains, and he just breaks the chains. He's got this like supernatural strength because he's possessed by not one, but many demons. Remember, this is the we are legion, we are many story. And Jesus has conflict in this moment with this man. But again, the conflict is meant to bring freedom, to bring restoration to this man, and ultimately that is what Jesus accomplishes. It's a healing conflict, not a hurting conflict. There are two kinds. I hope you can understand the difference. We have to understand the difference because we're going to see both of them at play in the book of Job. And understanding the difference is going to help us figure out not only how pain and conflict relate with one another in Job's life, but how it ultimately relates with us. So let's jump in. We're going to jump right into Job chapter 1, and we get right up front some really important details about who this man is. If you have your Bibles, Job 1.1, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. So right away in verse 1, what do we know about Job? We know that his name is Job, helpful. We know that he's from a place called the Land of Uz, which is somewhere close to modern-day Saudi Arabia. But we learn some really important things about him other than that, just with regard to the kind of person that he is. Number one, we, we figure out that he's a man of character. It says that he's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. In other words, he's a good man. He loved the Lord. He turned away from evil. He's blameless. He's upright. He lives a life that's honoring to God. It says that he fears God. Remember, we talked about this two weeks ago in the book of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. So we can deduce that because God, or because Job is someone who fears God, he's likely someone who lived with wisdom. He understood what wisdom looked like. So he's a man of character. Number two, he's a family man. Verse two tells us that he had seven sons and three daughters, Big family. Verse 5, 
It says, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, and thus Job did continually. So Job loved his kids. He was a family man, so much so that he would get up every day and he would go and sacrifice not only for himself, but for his kids, thinking maybe they've sinned in their hearts. I need to, I need to sacrifice for them. He was a man that loved his children wanted to protect his children, wanted to, to be an intermediary for his children between them and God. Number three, and this is important to the story, he's a wealthy man. He's a wealthy man. All the people on Daystar said amen, right? His, his possessions were uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So he's a big deal. He's a really, really big deal. In fact, he's such a big deal that he comes up in a discussion between God and Satan. Verse 6, it says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them. Now, uh, pay attention to that phrase, sons of God, for a moment. That's a, a phrase that we find pretty frequently in the Old Testament. It always means angels. Always. That's how angels are described very often in the Old Testament as sons of God. Sons of God, plural. So get the scene for a minute, because this is a really epic scene, okay? God is on his throne. The angels file into the throne room, and they are surrounding the room, and they are presenting themselves before God on his throne. And it says that in the midst of these angels weasels in a character named the Satan. Satan is there. And God speaks to Satan. God notices Satan in the midst of the angels. And he says, where have you been? And Satan replies, this is verse 7, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And God says, hey, uh, while you've been roaming around on the earth, have you happened to come across a man named Job, really good guy, loves his kids, loves me, lives a good life, godly life? I'm paraphrasing a little bit. It's not exactly how it says And Satan says, in a nutshell, yeah, yeah, I know Job. He seems like a pretty good guy, but, and God's like, and? And Satan says, well, the only reason he's good is because you've given him so many good things. And in other words, he's saying that Job's devotion to you is only as high as the things that you've given him, the blessings that you've put out on his life. But you take away the blessings, I guarantee you the devotion goes down. No more devotion. Job isn't that good of a guy after all. You've picked the greatest man in all the land of the East. You take that stuff away, and then we'll really see what Job is about. And so God says to Satan in verse 12, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. In other words, what God is saying here is you can torment Job, You can take everything from him. You can inflict all kinds of pain on him, both emotionally and physically. Just don't kill him. That's the only thing off limits. Everything else is fair game. Go at it. Have fun. Just don't kill him. And so with the green light, Satan wastes no time at all. He immediately pushes into the attack. Job is standing there one day. It says that his sons and daughters are at the oldest son's house. They're eating. They're having a good time. They're being a good family. Job's out kind of doing whatever Job does. And a servant comes running up to Job out of breath. And he says, Job, the Sabaeans, 
They came and, and they took all of your oxen and all of your donkeys and all of the servants that were out on the field with the oxen and donkey. They killed them all and I'm the only one that survived. And while Job is processing this massive loss, he sees a second servant coming, running up. And the, and the servant comes up and he says, Job, fire, you'll never believe what happened. I was out in the field with the sheep and fire from heaven fell on all the sheep and all of the servants that were tending them and they're all dead. I'm the only one that survived. And then a third servant comes running up and Job is thinking, oh no, not another, not another messenger. And he says, Job, you're never going to believe what happened. The Chaldeans came and, and they were in three different groups and they had this whole strategy and they made a raid on all the camels that you own and they killed all of your servants that were tending to them. And so Job is going, the donkey, the oxen, the sheep, the camels, right? I don't have anything left. What is going on? And then the fourth messenger comes. The worst news of all, verses 18 and 19. He says, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the home, and it fell on the young people, and they died. One confrontation with Satan and God leads to the single most devastating day in Job's life. And this brings up the first point for us this morning. Pain is often the result of conflict. Pain is often the result of conflict. If we come back to the central question that we've been asking this whole sermon series, why did this happen? Job says the pain that you experienced might be a result of some kind of conflict in or around your life. Job loses almost everything. I mean, apart from losing his children, which is obviously the worst part of the story, but, but everything else is really a pretty big deal as well. With his livestock gone, his servants gone, his entire ecosystem for survival will eventually crumble. Job, at this point, is totally destitute. He has no way of providing for himself, of caring for himself, and his wife, which is all that is left. And all of that, all of those things that happen, devastating, painful things that happen. They're not a result of unwise choices that Job made. They're not a result of just random chance or the unfair nature and unpredictability of the world. Job's pain comes from conflict. And the same is true for us today, only a little bit different. There are a couple ways that this plays out for us in our own lives. Sometimes our pain is the result of spiritual conflict, similar to Job, but not in the way that Job experienced it. And I want to be very, very intentional in making sure that you understand this. Job's scenario is very unique. It's a very unique situation. It's the only story like this one recorded in the scripture. There are no other Job's in the Bible. Beyond that, Satan, you really got to understand this, Satan does not have the ability to do now to you or I what he did then to Job. He can no longer do that. He can no longer go from earth to heaven and back to earth. You need to understand that Job was written a very long time ago. In fact, scholars believe that this was the oldest book in the Old Testament. It's the oldest book in terms of when it was written. It likely predates Moses and even Abraham. So while the book of Genesis records the beginnings of the earth, the creation account, uh, the, the, the whole entire lineage leading up to Abraham and then the patriarchy and, and all of those really important events, 
Genesis was written most likely by Moses. And Moses doesn't come until several hundred years after Abraham. And so Moses is writing in retrospect. God is revealing to him by the Spirit of God the things that took place. And he is recording this divine revelation to reveal to us how all of this came to be. But Job makes no mention of Abraham or any of the patriarchs or Moses or anything like that. And this was likely written, therefore, long before those people lived. He's in the east. There's not even any mention of Israel or the people of God. He's just some guy living in ooze that loves God and is sacrificing and doing a lot of the things that the Old Testament prescribes, but Job makes no mention of where he even learns how to do any of this stuff. And the fact, actually, that Job sacrifices for himself and his children indicates there's no priesthood. So this was likely a very long time ago, a really long time ago. That is very important. Why? Because a lot of things have changed since then. The way that the world operates, the way Satan operates, has changed drastically since Job was written. If you go all the way to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, what we find in Revelation is that Revelation is not purely interested in the future. Revelation is going to tell us a lot of things that happened in the past as well, and and chapter 12 is one of those places. What we learn in chapter 12 is that after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, so Jesus dies on the cross, he's raised in three days, and then if you remember, he's around for about 40 days telling people, uh, revealing himself to different people, and then it says he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Revelation 12 says that right after that happens, Michael is defeated by Satan, Michael the archangel, And Satan and about a third of the angels are thrown down from heaven onto earth and imprisoned on the earth and can no longer access the heavenly realm like Satan did in Job 1, where he comes into the midst of the sons of God coming before Yahweh on the throne. He can no longer do that. He's not able to do that. And I say that all to say that because of how different things are, you really have to understand the uniqueness of this story because it is not uncommon in the church. I hear this a lot. When someone is suffering major loss in their life, you'll hear people say things like, whoa, it's a modern-day Job story. You know, Satan must be after him. It happened to Job. It's probably happening to him. And that's just not true. That's not how, maybe Satan is after you, but I'm going to be honest, I doubt it. Very, very seriously. Maybe demons are after you. Spiritual conflict, demonic Conflict, absolutely a possibility. Almost certainly not Satan. And there's a reason why I think that. You're simply not important enough. I say that with the most love. I include myself in that as well. Understand this. What do we know about Satan, right? Satan is not omnipresent like God, which means he can't be in all places at one time, which means, crucially, he can only be in one place at one time. He's not omniscient like God. He doesn't know all things. He can't read your mind. He only knows some things. And there are a lot of things then, if that's true, that he doesn't know. There are a lot of unknowns to Satan. Beyond that, he is not omnipotent like God. He does not have all power. He's not unlimited in his power. In fact, he is quite limited. He's limited in where he can be, he's limited in what he knows, and he's limited in what he can do. And so, this is just my opinion, although I think I'm right about this, if Satan has a limited amount of time and can only be in one place at one time and is unaware of a lot of things that are happening and has limited power to affect change, it stands to reason that he will spend most of his time in places where he has the most potential to affect the most change. 
So kings, world leaders, politicians, etc. Crucially, not East Fort Worth. <laughs> now, your pain may be the result of demonic conflict. That is very possible. But overwhelmingly, I, I'm just going to put this out there, overwhelmingly, if you are experiencing pain from conflict, it is almost certainly not spiritual conflict, but relational conflict. Now, what do I mean by that? By relational conflict, what I mean is broken marriages, long-term friendships that end with some kind of hurtful betrayal or, or something of that nature, estrangement from children or parents. That kind of conflict is usually the kind of conflict that breeds the most pain in our lives. And so this is where we come back to some definitions. What do you think causes relational conflict? Hurting conflict? Or healing conflict. Now, you're going to be tempted to say hurting. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes there's a betrayal that happens. There's no desire for healing. It's only about hurting those who hurt you. That does happen from time to time. But if we're being honest, it's, it's again, a bit more complicated, a bit more complex than just hurting conflict. Usually, relational pain is the result of someone initiating healing conflict when the other party is either not ready to face reality or outright meets healing conflict with hurting conflict. Now, this is how this usually goes. We're going to get very practical here for a moment. I'm going to use an example of a husband and wife, but it doesn't have to be a husband and wife. It can be any relationship that you can think of. Let's say we have a husband and a wife, and both of them, like all people, have character problems. They have character defects. There's things that sabotage them that they are or are not working on. And their problems do what problems always do in a marriage. They collide, right? And they go head to head. And so the husband, let's say he's a workaholic. He doesn't pay much attention to the wife. He's selfish. He's only really interested in what he wants. He shuts himself off emotionally. And the wife... We'll say she's codependent, she bottles her emotions up, she avoids confrontation, she doesn't want to get into any kind of, of altercation with him because she's afraid that, that because he's so closed off, he might eventually leave her. And, and so what happens to people when they bottle their emotions up, uh, that bottle eventually bursts, right? You shake it up enough, it usually bursts. And so she cries out to him, but he's selfish, he doesn't listen, and so now she feels unsafe and uncared for, and the two begin to drift apart, and so what happens is she detects this problem. And guys, I'm going to be honest with you. You may not like to hear this, but it's just the truth. Usually it is the woman who detects the problem in the relationship first, right? Guys like, what? Uh, so she detects the problem. She comes to him. And now we have conflict. There's conflict. Now at this point, he has a choice in this whole conflict, what she wants out of this conflict, her goal in this conflict, is restoration. In other words, this is healing conflict that she's engaging in. She wants him to hear her hurts, to hear her pain, to humble himself, to listen, to own what he has done or, or is doing and begin to work to change it. And here's the magic. When he does that, if he does that, trust starts to build, and now she can hear her faults as well. And this is where the mending process takes place, and it's a really beautiful thing that, that happens. But only if he chooses to meet her healing conflict with healing conflict. Often, he does not. He's either not ready for the reality of where things are, and so he just won't comply, he just doesn't do anything, or worse, he engages in hurting conflict. He doubles down, he starts taking shots at her, 
and it begins to spiral out of control. I know. It, I mean, what I'm saying even makes babies cry. It's really hard. We're going to get to good news eventually, I promise. Now listen, if you are in a relationship and you do this little dance one or two times, probably not going to likely do a whole lot of damage. And I suspect most couples in here have been here before, right? But you do this enough, this cycle, it ends in divorce. You continue to drift and drift and drift and drift and drift until there's, there's no marriage left. And so now you're left wrestling with the pain of this failed relationship and you begin to ask, why did this happen? And the wisdom of Job is going to tell you it's because you either rejected healing conflict in your life or worse, you met healing conflict with hurting conflict. When they came to you with a grievance, you didn't listen, you either ignored it or you took shots of your own, you weren't even trying to fix the problem, you weren't even trying to hear the problem, you just wanted your pound of flesh. And so whenever someone comes to you, this is just a great practical approach to relationships. Whenever someone comes to you and expresses a problem with you, something that you have done that has hurt them, ask the question to yourself before you respond to them, does my answer seek to hurt or restore? Because if it seeks to hurt, don't answer. Don't say anything. If it seeks to restore, then proceed forward. And listen, full disclaimer, as your pastor, this is so much easier said than done, is it not? I do not do this perfectly. You ask Mrs. Bledsoe, she will amen you until Jesus comes back. <laughs> but it's something we work on. It's something we talk about. Pain is often the result of conflict in your life, but it gets even more complicated than that. Number two, conflict is often the result of pain. So here's how this works. You experience conflict. That conflict creates pain in your life. Since we don't handle pain well, we've already established that, we act out, and that acting out often creates more conflict in our life, and round and round we go. And for Job, this is true. Job is desolate, he's in pain, and this pain leads him into not one, but three different conflicts in his life. We're going to look at each of them. Number one, it pushes him into marital conflict. And Job, to be fair, handles this one pretty decently. He's not perfect, but he handles it okay. More has happened at this point to Job in this part of the story. He, Satan strikes him again, and he has boils all over him, and he's just this like physical disaster of a human being, right? He's... He's got nothing left. He's in pain. He looks horrible. He, he's just kind of laying around. But he hadn't abandoned his faith. He's still worshiping God. He's still committed to following Yahweh. And his wife sees this in him, and she's annoyed by it. She says in Job 2.9, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, we like to give Mrs. Job a hard time, right? And certainly she's wrong. We don't make any excuses, but can we not appreciate her feelings about this? Can we not relate a little bit to this? I mean, she's saying, Job, what are you doing? You've lost everything. How can you sit here and sing worship songs? You should be angry with God. Anyone relate to her in that? And look at his verse in, or look at his response in verse 10. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Maybe a little bit of hurting conflict going on here. Not the best look for Job. 
He says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now, get what he's saying, because this is important. This is heavy. Job is saying, we're so quick to give God glory when God is giving us everything that we want. Should we not also glorify God when things don't go our way? Amen. Amen. Yeah. This is a big question, one that we should wrestle with, that we should really think deeply about. God is worthy regardless of our experience. His worth is not connected to our experience. We don't give him five stars when it's a great experience and three stars when the service is terrible. God is worthy regardless of of what we are going through. And so pain creates marital conflict. Second, creates brotherly conflict. Next, his friends come to him. And there's three of them, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And it's pretty clear when you read this portion of Job that all of them, including Job himself, share a very simple view of the world that's very honestly similar to the book of Proverbs. If you're good, you can expect good things to happen. And if you're bad, you can expect judgment. Essentially, this is their worldview. And their worldview centers around this concept of justice. The way they view the world and life is that God is just. And if God is just, what that means is he will bless those who are good and that he will judge those who are bad. That's the basis of their, their conflict, the basis of their argument. And this, this conflict takes a long time. It's, it's chapters 3 through 28. It's a long, long argument. And so we don't obviously have time to go through all of it, but I want to give you the basic outline of what each of them are arguing for and how each of them are both right and wrong. They, they both get some things right and some things wrong. Uh, Job's argument is essentially that I'm a good person, therefore pain in my life is not God's judgment. God can't judge me because I'm a good person. Remember, judgment only falls on bad people. And and Job is a good person. He's not wrong about that. Chapter one says that. He's upright. He's blameless. He fears God. He avoids evil. And so both of these assumptions are correct, but he draws the wrong conclusion. He says either then, what that means is God does not judge the world justly, or even worse, God himself is unjust. So he makes the right assumptions. He draws the wrong conclusions. His friends come along and they say the exact opposite argument. They say, no, 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 Job, God is just. He absolutely is just. And he does govern the world with this kind of justice. He will bless good people. He will judge bad people. And again, both of these things are right. God is just. He does judge the world with justice. Remember Ecclesiastes 12, 14. We talked about that last week. The last verse in Ecclesiastes. It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So these assumptions are true. But like Job, they draw the wrong conclusions. They say to him, there must be then some sin in your life, Job, that you're forgetting about. There's got to be something that you've done that you're just not, you're either not thinking about or you're just flat out lying about. That's the only explanation for any of this. Now, can we be super honest for a minute? How often do we think like this? When something bad happens, I think there must be something I've done wrong. God is punishing me for something I know he is. What did I do that made him so mad? And you begin going through the the Rolodex of experiences over the last however long. What did I do? What did I do? What did I say? How did I act? What is God? Oh, you know what? It must be this one thing. God must be angry for that. Am I hitting a nerve yet? (laughs) Understand that God doesn't operate this way. This isn't how God's economy works. It's not how he works at all. This assumes, this thinking assumes that you can actually outwork God's favor. Let me give you a very gospel-centered truth here. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to unearn it. 
You can't earn God's favor. You cannot work your way into salvation. You just don't have it. The Bible is very clear about that. God has to, by his grace, make us alive together with Christ. He has to to give something, to do something in us in order to enact change that we can then follow him. And so if we cannot earn the favor of God, you cannot unearn it. That's not how grace works. But it's hard not to think that way, isn't it? And even Job begins to slip. Job 27.2, he eventually comes to this point where he says, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice? The Almighty, who has made my life bitter. He's finally angry with God. And that leads him into this third conflict, which we will call divine conflict. At this point, Job is a mess. He's arguing with his wife. He's arguing with his friends. He begins to blame God. And, and, and it's really weird. He's like on this really emotional roller coaster, right? One minute he's blaming God, and the next minute he takes it back. And then after that, he doubles down. And he's just kind of all over the place. And we get to chapter 31, verse 35, and Job says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He's saying, oh God, come forth and answer for this injustice. And oh boy, does Job get what he wants. After a brief conversation with another friend, a man by the name of Elihu, God comes to Job in the form of a storm. So you've got to just imagine this for a moment. Job's out in a field. It's dark because of the clouds. The storm is raging, and God begins to speak to him. And it's interesting that he doesn't actually answer any of Job's questions. Job is asking, why did this happen? Are you a God of justice? Are you unjust or just? God doesn't answer any of those questions at all. Instead, he takes Job on a journey beginning with creation. He says in Job 38, verses 2 and 3, he says, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. In other words, what God is saying is, who do you think you are to make demands of me? And then he goes on in verses 4 through 7. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Maybe I've forgotten. Maybe you were there, and I've forgotten, Job. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or, Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And God continues this question. He really takes Job to task. He asks him about the weather. How's the weather operate, Job? You know that? You know how snow works? How's the ocean work, Job? You know where any of this water came from? What stops it from going any further than where it stops on the beaches? What about the animals, Job? You know how they work? You know how they, you know how they reproduce? Do you know how they operate? Do you know how they hunt? Do you know how they think? And the question as you're reading all this is, what is God doing? What is he up to? It it seems almost kind of rude, right? When we read it in our modern context, it's just like God is just like tearing Job down. Job is in pain. He comes to God and God's just making him feel like an idiot. But that's not what's happening at all, I don't think. God is making a very important point to Job and one that is going to help Job in this moment of pain. He's reminding Job that the world is a really, really big place. It's extremely complex. There's multiple systems that are extremely complex that have many variables and many different things happening all at one time. And yet, God has his eyes on all of it. He's aware of everything, and crucially, Job is not. Job is limited in his understanding of things. He doesn't have the perspective that God has. 
So this is very important. God is teaching Job something. You see, Job is demanding God to answer for the injustice that he has experienced in his life. He's saying, why did this happen? If you are a good God, why did you allow this? Explain yourself. But in questioning God this way, Job is making an assumption. Job is assuming that if God were to show up and explain to him why these bad things are happening, the assumption is Job could understand the answer. And God is showing him, you can't. He's saying, Job, you can't even understand how the basic parts of the world work. You can't even understand how the basic systems of creation operate. How in the world do you think you can understand how divine justice works? It's too big for you to wrap your mind around. You have a very limited perspective. You are not God, but I am. There's so many times that we find ourselves in positions similar to Job, where we've experienced something really hurtful and really unfair, and and frankly, unfair. And and we demand God to answer our deepest questions. Why did this bad thing happen in my life? Why didn't God stop this thing from happening? Where was God in all this? Why does God allow any of this to happen? And those questions assume that if God were to answer you, you could understand the answer. And this divine conflict reveals to us that the world is a much bigger place than we comprehend It's far more complicated than we could ever understand. And so then that pushes us to accept this reality that I may not understand it all, but God does. He has my best interest in mind. He loves me. He said so. He sent a son to die for me. And so all I'm really left to do in those unexplainable, painful moments is just trust him through it. You know, those of you who have come around over the last year or two, you don't know my story all that well. I haven't really shared a whole lot of it from the stage in a while, it occurred to me. Uh, I was sharing in a group the other morning, and I realized I'm saying a lot of things that a lot of people in that group were not aware of. And I grew up in a really uh, tumultuous home, uh, a very broken home. My father is in prison serving a life sentence uh, for a really terrible crime. My mom is an addict. My sister is an addict. Uh, I was introduced to drugs and alcohol before I was 10 years old, experienced a lot of pain in my life growing up. And, and so when I talk about how much I love City on a Hill, I don't say it only as a practitioner of the ministry here. I say it as a recipient of the ministry as well. I came to this church with a lot of hurt in need of a lot of healing. And I've received a lot of healing, help, hope, and healing from Jesus. And, you know, I was talking to my daughter, one of my daughters the other day. She was asking me all these questions, and, and she brought up my father. And she couldn't understand why my dad is not around. Why is my dad not in my life? And, you know, they, my girls have a daddy that loves them and is, is there a lot. And she just can't understand why mine is not. And so I started explaining to her, you know, she's eight. And so, but I tried to explain to her in, in, in childlike terms why things were the way they were. And, and I could tell as I was talking with her that my answers were just not sufficient for her. <laughs> and so she kind of continued to question and, and I... She was sitting on my lap, and I finally kind of put my hand on her, on her cheek, and I said, sweetheart, I said, the bottom line is it's hard for me to explain. It's hard for daddy to explain all of this right now because you wouldn't understand it. But one day you will understand it, and it'll all make sense. And I like to imagine that that is how God operates with us. That when we come to him, 
with pain and questions about things that have hurt us. And we want to know why things have happened the way they've happened. That, that he puts his hand on our face and he looks deeply into us and says, sweetheart, it's hard for me to explain right now because you wouldn't understand it. But one day you will. It'll all make sense. That's the promise of scripture, folks. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says that we see right now as in a mirror dimly, but one day we will see face to face. We know now in part, but one day we will know all things as we have fully been known. All of those painful moments in your life, you'll have explanation for. You'll you'll get it. It'll make sense. You don't understand it now, but you'll get it one day. But the promise of God is even better than that because what it goes on to say is that more than just explaining why things happen, God will one day so radically undo them that there'll be a fleeting memory. Revelation 21.4 says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more and neither shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the promise of God. This will happen. Until then, all we can do is trust him. All we can do is take him at his word, faith. Job eventually does that in this story. He's eventually restored. It's not easy. And you're going to wrestle with it. You're going to wrestle with it hard. But that's what this is all about, conflict. You will have conflict with this. But what you will find through that conflict is that rather than asking the question when you experience something hurtful, why did this happen, it's better to ask How can I trust God with this more? Because if you can do that, then you can endure anything. And one day, it'll all make sense. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your servant Job, uh, for an unimaginably difficult life and experience that is so fruitful for us when we read about it, to understand. There's so many things we can relate to in it. There's so many various aspects of his life that we can connect to and, and the, way that you, the way that you deal with Job, the way that you operate with Job is so, is so honestly comforting. We, we confess, God, that we, we don't understand why things happen and, and we wrestle with it. We have conflict with it. And so help us, God, through that conflict, uh, A, not only engage with healing conflict, but B, be able to come to a point where we just admit it's beyond our ability to understand sometimes. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it is. And in those moments, give us faith, more faith, faith upon faith to just accept what has happened and trust that you are God, that you are on your throne and that you love us and that one day it'll all make sense. Until then, God, we worship you and we praise you and we thank you right here in the moment. Help us by your spirit in places we struggle. Help us encourage those around us who struggle as well to remind them as we need reminding who you are and how we fit into all this, God. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.